Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. The beginning of the new year brings a confluence of the advent of the political season and a Donald Trump legal obstacle course that is both astoundingly complicated and profoundly grave for the former president. Just as we tape this episode, the U.S. Supreme Court accepted Trump's request to review the decision of the Colorado Supreme Court disqualifying him from that state's primary ballot and set a blazingly fast schedule culminating in oral argument one month from today. The landmark case, Trump versus Anderson, is one of three separate cases that may require the high court to wade into the 2024 election, risking the country's ire and resistance to the outcome. It is a position the court almost surely would prefer to avoid, but it already has agreed to hear two of the cases, the Colorado case posing the question whether Trump engaged in insurrection within the meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and U.S. versus Fisher posing the constitutionality of the federal obstruction statute that is the basis for key charges against Trump. And then there's the question of Trump's immunity for prosecution altogether, which he has pressed aggressively and which will be heard tomorrow in the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, with a likely trip to the Supreme Court to follow. The beginning of the primary process, Iowa caucuses in one week, casts a shadow on all the work of the federal government. The two parties are arguably closer to a bipartisan solution on the perennial and seemingly intractable immigration issue. But political pressures, in particular Republicans' preference for keeping the issue unresolved in the expectation that voters will blame Biden and the Democrats, threaten to prevent any further action in 2024. To help unravel the legal implications of the politics and the political implications of the law, we have a terrific group of expert commentators. And they are Jonathan Capehart, Jonathan is an associate editor and opinion columnist for the Washington Post. He's also the longtime anchor of the Sunday show with Jonathan Capehart on MSNBC, soon to be the Saturday and the Sunday show starting January 13th. He is also a political analyst for PBS NewsHour and host of the podcast Capehart. Jonathan previously was the youngest ever member of the New York Daily News editorial board, where he shared the Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing in 1999. Welcome back, Jonathan Capehart. Hey, Harry. Great to see you. Jim Walden, a founding partner at Walden, Mocked, and Heron, LLP, where he is a go-to white-collar crime specialist. He previously had a distinguished career as a federal prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York, where he worked in particular on a number of high-profile mob cases. This is his first time on Talking Feds. Welcome, Jim. Perfect to see you, Harry. Thanks for having me. And Sadie German, a Wall Street Journal reporter covering the Justice Department and federal law enforcement with an emphasis on the intersection of politics and law. 
And that intersection has to be more pronounced in 2024 than ever. Sadie has covered legal issues for more than 17 years, previously for the Associated Press and several local newspapers. Thanks, Sadie, for joining us again on Talking Feds. Thank you for having me. All right, let's start with the Supreme Court's grant of cert in the Colorado case that involves a constitutional provision almost no one in the country had ever heard of a year ago, but it's now taken center stage as all the parties in the Colorado case disqualifying Trump from appearing on the ballot petitioned the Supreme Court for review and expedited review at that. Meanwhile, the main Secretary of State held Trump ineligible for candidacy on that state's ballot, and some 17 other states are fielding similar challenges at some stage. So let's start here. Trump began his petition to the Supreme Court. It is a, quote, fundamental principle of our representative democracy embodied in the Constitution that the people should choose whom they please to govern them. So the argument to his supporters is that Colorado's decision is undemocratic. Does that have force? I'll wade into the breach first. I find this whole discussion ironic, given the fact that the Supreme Court uh, has been saying states have to control these processes and Bush v. Gore, the states, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so what about the states now, right? Uh, Don't states get to control who's on the ballot? And yes, of course, the provision's not been used prominently. It's been used, but it hasn't been used prominently. But shouldn't state legislatures, according to, you know, Supreme Court wisdom, have the first crack through whatever process they choose to use to determine who should be eligible for their ballots in their states? Well, first, let me ask about the sort of rhetorical war of words where each side claims the sort of mantle and flag of democratic values. What do you think of of Trump wrapping himself in the flag when we're talking about a constitutional provision? I'm surprised that the flag he's wrapping himself into doesn't, you know, burst into flames. I mean, his (laughs) his arguments just they don't hold water, given what we saw over four years and especially what we saw three years ago on January 6th. And this idea that there are these bad forces out here trying to keep him off the ballot, we have to remember a few things. One. It's Republican citizens, by and large, who are bringing these challenges to Trump being on the Republican primary ballot, not the general election ballot, but the primary ballot. And so why shouldn't Republicans have a say in who is on their state's ballots? I mean, look, he's paying a lot of people, well, supposedly paying a lot of people to defend him in court, which is his right under the Constitution. But just because he makes an argument in filings doesn't mean that we have to read it without laughing. Well, and I think that, uh, Jonathan, to your point, I think the laughter gets even louder, frankly, when you look at the arguments. I mean, argument number one, I didn't take an oath to support the Constitution. I took an oath to defend the Constitution. Wait, or, or, or my favorite one. I'm an officer of the United States when it comes to trying to get rid of the Manhattan DA's prosecution. But for these purposes, uh, I'm not an officer of the United States. I mean, these aren't even technicalities. These are ridiculous arguments. I don't know if if you agree. And you know what, Jim, on that point, I like to say I'm not a lawyer. I will never go to law school. 
but I know how to read. <laughs> they are trying to say that the president of the United States, the commander in chief, is not an officer of the United States. I mean, what in the world is that argument? They must think that we're all fools. By the way, Jonathan, you just said we sometimes have a side bet. At what point will someone first say, I'm not a lawyer on a Talking Feds <laughs> episode? There's a sense in which the original constitutional structure would be unperturbed by the idea of different states having him on the ballot or not. But it seems very much that the mindset of the country and the court will be otherwise. Or I guess that's my question to you. Do you think the court will take it as its surpassing task to somehow impose one solution that keeps it from being a patchwork solution in different states? Yeah, I have to imagine that they'll view it that way because this patchwork that you're talking about, it's just going to create future legal challenges across the board and different kinds of legal challenges in elections, not just this one, but going forward. Now that they've taken the case, I think we can expect them to move quickly to set some broader guidelines for how the country conducts its elections. So yeah, if what Sadie says is right, and let me just say I agree with her, they're going to need to embrace something that is maybe a little bit funky or weak in order to do the least harm, but still impose that solution. Do you, a, do you see that happening? And B, what does that mean to you? What's the least uh, harmful argument? Well, listen, like you, I am a lawyer, right? So I looked at uh, Moore v. Harper very carefully to, because everyone thought that the Supreme Court was going to basically say, Given the primacy that state legislatures have over elections, even state courts can't tell them what to do. That still got, I can't remember if it was two or three votes, but I think most Supreme Court watchers thought that that was going to be the rule of law after Harper versus Moore. But the Supreme Court has basically given state legislatures carte blanche to gerrymander in most circumstances without any sort of federal constitutional standards being placed on the ability, for example, to draw the lines specifically for political objectives. So you're a Republican and a Democrat state. The Democrats want to draw you out of the lines. Basically, the Supreme Court has said you can do that. I don't see how the Supreme Court, if it cares about legitimacy, and apparently they do, but I don't see how they get around letting state legislatures interpret the Constitution as they see fit under their state laws. So I agree with Sadie full force that they will decide quickly. But I think that this is going to be a litmus test for how much they really care about their legitimacy. Wow. Let me interrupt. So Justice Walden affirms the Colorado Supreme Court. Yes. And I would say that doesn't necessarily mean that Walden agrees with it, but it means that I've been saying as a Supreme Court justice, I like the sound of that for years, <laughs> given the fact that in case after case after case, they have said, hey, we're going to let state legislatures alone unless they do something really flagrant, like do it in a way that is intended to disenfranchise minorities or women or whatever. That's like the only guardrail, and even that guardrail has gone by the wayside. I think the only thing the Supreme Court can do to maintain its legitimacy is to say, yes, Colorado can interpret Section 3 the way that it deems appropriate, and other states can take a different view. But it's state control. I won't ask you non-lawyers to make a legal prediction, but just what are your thoughts are at what's at stake for the court? Not about the actual issues, but about the position that they're being forced into. Any any thoughts there? 
I heard somebody making the point that if they rule that states can take Trump off the ballot, that it would undermine confidence in elections for a large swath of the population. And I think that there might be some truth to that. I just am wrapping up a story about political violence that the January 6th attacks on the Capitol sort of ushered in this new era of political violence. And one of the main drivers of that violence still is conspiracy theories, fraud, election fraud, issues related to voting, continuing to drive people to violence or to violent threats. So if you start doing this, you know, that could fuel some of those conspiracy theories, even if they're totally groundless, totally meritless. I have to agree with Jim's assessment. I hope that the Supreme Court takes its legitimacy into account when it decides what to do in the Colorado case and in the main case when they get it. I just don't have any confidence that they will care. When it comes to legitimacy of elections now, look, folks don't believe that the 2020 election was fair, primarily because the former occupant of the White House, the former president of the United States, keeps saying so. It is my hope that the Supreme Court will render a ruling or make some kind of decision that will sort of re-legitimize elections, re-legitimize the court as a quote-unquote neutral arbiter, and say like, yeah, we're originalists and we believe that states should have this right to do this and therefore Colorado, your ruling stands. That would send an incredible signal to the broad swath of the country that worries that the Supreme Court is a political institution rather than one that is supposed to be rendering decisions based on the Constitution and a fair impartial reading of the law. I mean, I'll just say it's not just Colorado. We have just today, we, we tape on Friday, Massachusetts and Illinois getting into the pool and Maine. So I will note as, as a predictive value, my uh, putative dissent from uh, Justice Walden and say, I think they'll be looking to try to do something across the board that keeps him on the ballot. I hear kind of two votes for, forget what they will do, but in a perfect world, what would they do? And so if you had a magic wand, what would be the best result for the country and why, sort of law aside? And I think I've heard both Jonathan and Jim to suggest it would be to leave things undisturbed. If I knew for sure, what is the best in the best interest of the country, then I would probably throw my own hat into the ring and run. <laughs> so I will defer on that one. Well, what I can say is uh, there's a practical component to this, right? Which is it's not, I mean, the rule of law matters. And I think that what we've seen time and time again is when courts essentially give a pass to the rule of law and basically say, eh, yeah, it doesn't really matter here. Yeah, it doesn't really matter there. They detract from their own legitimacy, but they actually encourage more political violence. And right now, how could the Supreme Court for future generations make sure that if anyone did what happened on January 6th, they would know full well that there would be consequences? Number one, DOJ could put the people in jail. Number two, our courts and our political establishments could say, even though we would otherwise want Trump, not me, but even though we would otherwise want Trump, he crossed a red line. The rule of law matters. We do not allow insurrectionists to run for office and we're done. 
And so if the Supreme Court wants to protect for future generations, it should do what the framers intended, which is to create the maximum possible deterrence against political violence against our country. I'm seeing nods anyway. I'll just say that this is one that I think, A, the court had to take it, and B, there will be a breakdown, not necessarily along political lines. There will be some people, starting with the chief justice, who are really thinking about how to do the least harm. And Jim raises a great point, because the two arguments served up to them that could give a uniform solution, that he's not an officer, and that Congress must decide... They ain't great, either of them, legally, but it looks like that is what will be front and center. All right, let's move to the other big Trump point. I mean, you know, this court now has three different cases, each of which could be momentous politically, and that's only happened to them a couple times in their history. The Colorado case is one of only two or probably three cases making their way to the court that could have huge repercussions for the 2024 election and Trump's candidacy. Another closely followed case is Trump's appeal of Judge Tanya Chutkin's denial of his immunity claim in the 1-6 election interference trial in her courtroom. It's an undecided question. The courts have held there's a measure of immunity for civil lawsuits alleging wrongful conduct by a sitting president How does that situation compare in general to a criminal charge? Let's start here. How does that situation in civil cases compare in general to a criminal charge? Should it be harder to get immunity for allegations of having committed crimes? From a legal perspective, in every single forum where immunity matters, criminal immunity is the hardest to get. It's where there are the most gating items. And it would be shocking if the Supreme Court were to say that the president was immune from criminal prosecution. I mean, what we heard political commentators, even on the right, saying all throughout the impeachment proceedings is, let's wait, let's wait, let's wait. There'll be a prosecution at the end of the day. Well, guess what? Now there is. And this is exactly what Trump and his his acolytes wanted. They wanted Congress to stand down. They wanted the FBI to stand down while the president was there. Surprise, surprise. Donald Trump reinvents the argument and applies it to the current day circumstances, regardless of the fact that it's hypocritical. The truth of the matter is the president of the United States is not immune from criminal activity for crimes that he or she committed in office. And were the court to embrace that view, all it would do is to encourage criminality on the right and on the left for generations to come. And that's why I don't think the Supreme Court will embrace that argument, regardless of the various uh, theories that the Trump folks use to try to press uh, that rotten meat. I'm still processing press rotten meat. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a bad one? No, I was good. You are um, definitely channeling Jack Smith. What you said sounded almost like a court filing that he you know, issued in opposition to Trump's claims of immunity. But that's certainly the view of the prosecutors that, you know, basically if the president of the United States is immune from all criminal activity, then President Biden could go and shoot and kill somebody tomorrow and get away with it. So, you know, that's certainly not not a fair thing to say. (laughs) And I think that you'll hear prosecutors making that point more clearly. He does, Smith, have a whole parade of horribles. If this were that, then, you know, 
I actually think the case is a little bit fuzzy about whether it concerns what I call in shorthand Fifth Avenue immunity, meaning he could shoot a guy on Fifth Avenue, or outer perimeter immunity, meaning he just wants to argue for immunity for something that is at least colorably within his duties. The problem with that latter view, which I I think would be the most the court would say, is sure doesn't sound like it on the facts. It's sort of in this larger issue, because we're we're having a rational conversation about an irrational actor. <laughs> oh, no. Right, right. And so if Trump is given a legal off-ramp on immunity, we have seen time and time again during his presidency that all he needs is a toehold. And then he'll take the next step. And then he'll take the next step to the point where we're wondering, hey, how did we get here? How did how did this happen? How did he shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and now has a credible legal argument for why he should not be prosecuted? And so that's why I'm with Jim here. Like the Supreme Court absolutely has to come down and say, Brother Man, you do not have immunity. The immunity is not blanket. You cannot have it from criminal prosecution if you're president, running for president, or have been president, period. For what it's worth, I think that's what they will say. And this one, you know, people are thinking kind of reflexively of the people he appointed. But remember, when uh, Brett Kavanaugh was being confirmed, he cited U.S. versus Nixon as a shining moment for the court standing up to the president. That would be such an unconstitutional or un-American idea, as you say, so chafe against the integral notion that no person is above the law, that I, I can't see it. And the question, I think, legally and sort of Supreme Court sussing out is whether Roberts will be able to command a unanimous court for this. Where will Alito and Thomas be? But I see them making a pretty definitive statement uh, against Trump. I like to do the legal and then come back to the practical, right? And the practical here is, well, how does it look for the Trump appointees to be the ones uh, on that side of history, right? In terms of delegitimizing the court, I mean, they're in a tricky spot. If I I were them, I'd recuse myself because, uh, you know, that's probably the only safe way to go because if they stand against history and say, no, we're going to recognize an immunity for the president here. Not only is it a terrible law, but it's obviously a terrible precedent for practical reasons. And let's remember, Scooter Libby was prosecuted for criminal activity within the scope of his uh, duties. I mean, the whole Valerie Flame thing was arguably the same sort of analogy to what Trump did on January 6th, and he was prosecuted. So, Yes, maybe there is a standard for the president that's a notch higher, but it's not apples and oranges. And if you can't immunize the president for things that other executive officers have been prosecuted for throughout our history time and again. My point was just that I think given the unlikely prospect that the court will side with Trump on this issue, it's um, it has heightened the prospect of the March 14th trial date being delayed which is one of Trump's ultimate goals is just to push these proceedings back and back and back as far as he can to the election or even after the election. So um, by sending all these questions to the Supreme Court, he could very well have that effect. It's a great point. And we'll know this better on when the Court of Appeals argument happens tomorrow, because there are different ways they could hold that would really grease the tracks for Supreme Court review and others that would make it slower. 
I wanted to close out with thinking about the politics of the question in a sort of small way and a bigger way, I guess. The smaller way is, is this. So again and again, he's got 91 counts against him and they seem only to buoy at least his supporters and not really uh, change uh, people's overall feelings about Trump. Polls suggest that were he convicted, that might matter. What about this? If the court holds in a kind of definitive way that he doesn't have immunity, do you see that as having a salutary effect on the polity that like, okay, this guy is sort of a rogue actor, or is it too small gauge legal to actually move the political needle either way? That is a very good question. My initial reaction is that kind of decision in the short term could be one of these ho-hum, just a legal proceeding. But I think the more it's talked about and more it's reported on, that the enormity of the ruling will start to set in, especially a ruling coming from a 6-3 conservative supermajority court. A third of the bench was appointed by the man who's affected by their decision. And I would say to the broader point is, I try not to get bogged down by the political calendar in all of this, I understand what Trump is trying to do. Yes, he is trying to push it past the election in the hopes that he wins and then he can do all sorts of things with the, with the Justice Department to make some or all of these cases disappear. But I am looking at, you know, accountability has no timetable. And as long as these cases are wending their way through the system and briefs are filed and stories are written and testimony is given and is heard, that that adds to the record, the public record and the historical record, so that no matter what happens with any kind of verdict or ruling, there will be a paper trail for history, for the people who come after us, who will be able to see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears and, and read without being burdened by all of the stuff that we're burdened with now in the short term to see that what this guy did on that particular day and throughout the four years of his presidency were sort of heresy to our history. All right. And that broadens things to the sort of grander terms that I did want to close out on. Considering the overall political and cultural implications What's at stake for the country and the political system in the argument that Trump has immunity and what the court does with it? I feel like what Jim said is right, that this would kind of give some legitimacy to lawlessness on any level. You know, we would start to see all kinds of weird arguments being made by elected officials that have been untested. And so I think it would just open the floodgates for all sorts of different kinds of crimes to go unpunished. The other part that I think that I can't frankly wait for, because I'm kind of dreading but expecting that Trump is going to get the nomination and that he might win. And when I think about people like Mike Johnson and I think of people like Jim Jordan, I think of Dumb and Dumber, right? Because this guy has gone after people that supported him unfailingly, unflinchingly, and consistently. And these people that really could have changed, because if all of the people in the super right wing had gone after Trump and said, you know what, he's crossed a line, 
We're done with him. It's over. It's over now. And they had gotten behind, you know, pick Nikki Haley or whomever. They had gone and put their support behind them. The era of Trump might be over and people might be convinced, but it's only because of these voices and the money that keeps following Trump that he's still alive. And when Trump, if he gets elected into office, I guarantee you that those same people, a la Mitch McConnell and a la all of the other people that got crosswise with Trump and then got on his radar screen, for one reason or another, he will come after them. Because when you put someone who's clearly, clearly got a corrupt streak in a power of authority and you think, yes, but he'll leave me alone, well, then I wait for your comeuppance. I mean, you have put this in very sort of elementary constitutional terms, what's what's at stake here. And I do think it would be, you know, abhorrent tragic, heartbreaking to have the Supreme Court somehow endorse the notion that any president, but this guy in particular, is somehow gets a a free pass for just profoundly anti-constitutional conduct. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today's sidebar answers the question, what is a special master? To explain and answer this question, we welcome Brad Williams. Brad Williams is a stand-up comedian and actor. You may recognize him from his frequent appearances on the late night circuit, including Jimmy Kimmel Live, The Tonight Show, and Dave Attell's Comedy Underground. Or one of his numerous stand-up specials like Fun Size, which, when it ran, was the highest-rated special on Showtime. I give you Brad Williams on Special Masters. Sometimes, a judge needs help with a particular case in a way that goes beyond the skill set of his clerks and courtroom personnel. In such cases, she can appoint a special master. The term special masters is open-ended and flexible. Judges can appoint them for various reasons. Importantly, their authority derives from that of the judge, and they need to maintain the same impartiality as the judge. Often, special masters are prominent lawyers who devote extensive time to a particular case or court order that the court wouldn't have sufficient bandwidth to oversee. Other times, they are technical experts who have a skill set that a particular case calls for. You're most likely to see a special master most frequently in one of a handful of common settings. First, the Supreme Court uses special masters in cases that are based in original jurisdiction, a very small category identified by the Constitution. Most notably, suits between two states, for example, a dispute over state boundaries. Since the court almost always hears cases that originate elsewhere, it is not well adapted to resolve ground-level factual questions. Therefore, in original jurisdiction cases, the court will appoint a special master to conduct an investigation and prepare a recommendation to the court on how to rule. A second common use of special masters is to help oversee certain orders that require ongoing jurisdiction. For example, a court might order a special fund to compensate hundreds of different victims in a toxic tort or class action and then appoint a special master to oversee the actual distribution of funds to victims. Similarly, a court may order continuing oversight of a defendant or a government entity and then rely on the special master to administer the court's instructions on an ongoing basis. 
a recent controversy regarding special masters was federal district court judge Aileen Cannon's appointment of former judge Raymond J. Deary as special master in former President Trump's investigation by the FBI for his handling of national security and classified documents. President Trump requested a special master as a neutral investigator on August 22, 2022. Judge Cannon appointed Deary to this position and to determine whether certain documents were privileged or otherwise subject to discovery. But after exonerating criticism within the legal profession, the 11th Circuit concluded that Judge Cannon should not have been undertaking oversight of discovery in that matter, and it reversed her and dismissed Judge Deary. For Talking Feds, I'm Brad Williams. Thank you so much, Brad Williams. Brad's new hour special, Starfish, is out now on Live Nation's live entertainment streamer, Veeps. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we stir up a discussion around cocktails. Make your own or buy them ready to drink. There's no question that mixing a delicious cocktail is truly an art form. Precise measurements and proportions, creative substitutions, the presentation itself, and even the speed of delivery are all factors that earn great mixologists the reputations they deserve. But for people who may not stock things like triple sec and bitters, a ready-to-drink cocktail that's pre-measured and mixed just might be worth pulling off the shelf. Ready-to-drink cocktails don't necessarily give you the satisfaction of creating a drink from scratch, but they do offer up undeniable convenience, removing the complexity of recipes, the burden of acquiring ingredients, and the time it takes to measure, pour, mix, crush, stir, and of course, repeat. Plus, you still have the ability to customize your drink, adding a splash of this or that, here or there, to your liking. So, whether you're into customization or convenience, ready-to-drink cocktails give you a little bit of both. Now, who says you can't have your cocktail and drink it too? So what's better, customization or convenience? Probably depends on the situation. It can be fun crafting your own cocktail. But when time is short, ready-to-drink cocktail sure does hit the spot. Either way, you can grab all the ingredients you need for a great craft cocktail or get your ready-to-go favorite at Total Wine & More. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. So we have a few minutes to talk about something other than Donald Trump. It's always a nice moment in the episode when we can leave him behind. We turn to the vexing perennial policy and politics issue that is the border crisis. So while the Department of Homeland Security, whose secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, finds himself in the possible clutches of the Republican House, which apparently wants to impeach him, will release the December numbers later this month. It's estimated that U.S. officials processed around 300,000 people at the U.S. border with Mexico last month, the highest number ever recorded. And this record comes as the U.S. enters a presidential election year in which the topic of immigration is expected to play a major role. Let's start with the premise of the coverage. Is it a crisis? 
Harry, I think there is. Last month, we saw the largest number of migrants come over the border ever since they've been counting. You have a, a crisis because you've got Republican governors who are using these migrants as chess pieces in their political games, you know, flying them to Martha's Vineyard, sending them in buses to New York and Chicago, flying them into Chicago when the Chicago mayor says uh, you can't send buses anymore. You're going to love it here. <laughs> right, right. But then they start dropping them off 30 minutes outside of metropolitan areas. It's a crisis because there aren't enough Border Patrol agents. It's a crisis because there aren't enough judges who can adjudicate the asylum cases. I mean, all yes, there is a crisis, but this crisis has been there, Harry, long before Biden, long before Trump, long before Obama, long before W, long before Clinton. And the only way it's going to get solved is if Congress gets its act together and is a part of a, a bipartisan solution, not one where, like right now, you've got Speaker Johnson saying HR2 or nothing, which were Democrats have already said that's not going to happen. So there needs to be compromise here. But nothing's going to happen also when you've got Republicans like Congressman Troy Nels of Texas, who says, let me tell you, I'm not willing to do too damn much right now to help a Democrat and to help Joe Biden's approval rating. This is why this is a crisis. It's a political crisis. It's a humanitarian crisis. And it doesn't seem like Republicans, and more specifically, Republicans in the House of Representatives are too interested in doing anything to solve it. So I agree with a lot of what Jonathan says, but I have a, as a political independent, I'm not saying, Jonathan, you're not. I take a different view of this. I think that I agree it's a crisis, but blaming Democrats or Republicans like this is like blaming one side of a food fight. I believe this is another crisis of the Supreme Court because the reason that this happens is because of Citizens United, because the Supreme Court has allowed money to become so central to our elections that we get crappy candidates who don't care about solving problems and all they want to do is generate more controversy, point fingers at the other side, and then have their donation dollars go through the roof. So that's the way our system is now set up so that there's no more compromised so there's a crisis and there are two problems involved in the crisis. Number one is there's got to be better border control. There has to be. Like Democrats across the country now are saying that same thing. Should it be humane? Absolutely. But there needs to be better border control. And secondly, the federal government has to get involved in stopping this political nonsense of putting people on planes, trains and buses and putting them in Democratic states. Like that's what the federal government is for. And the Republican governors are terrible for doing this. It's no surprise to me that one of the companies that's got a multi-million dollar contract to help this is called Mayhem Solutions. Like literally <laughs> one of the companies that's helping bust these migrants. But the real problem here is the federal government needs to control what happens to the migrants once they're here. There should be a system in place for moving them out of the border states, putting them in humane conditions for those people that are allowed to stay here, getting fast tracks to their working permits, making sure their families stay together, making sure they've got health care, making sure that the states that are housing them have adequate information about their medical needs and their family needs. And the federal government is just standing around uh, with its head in the stand. Although the Biden administration did sue Texas for one of their attempts. Say, let me ask you, you know, I think the very 
thoughtful and humane vision that Jim just advanced. I think Mike Johnson and the Republicans will, would call that catch and release. So, you know, in a political year when this is a perennial sort of albatross for the Democrats, Jonathan, among others, has said, you know, they're actually closer to a bipartisan solution in the past. But is there any prospect at all that there will be a joining of hands across the aisle, do you think? I do think that there will have to be some joining of hands. Um, you know, I just think neither side's going to get everything they want by a long shot. But, you know, ultimately, there has to be some movement on this issue because it is a humanitarian crisis. And you have states, again, taking matters into their own hands and suing the bus companies and just trying to sort this out on their own. So I, I do think that they have to come to some kind of an agreement. It's just a question of what that will be and how many concessions have to be made. And what do you guys think about the politics of it? I mean, we are now so focused on how it plays with the Republican base, how it plays with the Democrat base, but we're shortly going to be turning to a, an overall look at the, what, 1%, 3%, 8% of persuadable voters. Do you think that they will hold it against either side if there isn't some sort of solution or conversely, is either side missing an opportunity here? That is, even though the base seems completely divided, the all-important and shrinking middle might actually care about government action here along the lines that Jim's outlined? One, this issue, it's such a hard issue that it's vexed, what, five administrations that I rattled off? Two, now this issue has been linked up to aid for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. So now a, a super complicated issue has been latched on to three super complicated issues, which on their own would take lots of time and debate to get done. And plus, when you add the comments like you see from Congressman Troy Nels, the idea that anything will get done or anything that does get done or proposed, let's say the Senate comes out with a deal, that deal's not going anywhere. That's the other thing that we have to face. Whatever deal comes out, it will be a miracle. And I will be glad to say I'm come back and say I was wrong if a deal comes through that gets through both chambers and the president signs it into law. I just don't see it happening. I'm with you, sad to say. Anyone want to end this last discussion on a more upbeat note? I'll answer your question this way, Harry, which is I think that one to three percent, whether it's something good or something bad, right, the buck stops with the president. And I think that, you know, wrongly, if something's good, the current president gets credit. If the voters view something is bad, the president gets blamed. So if there's not a solution before Election Day, I think it hurts Biden more than it hurts his opponent, which I hope is not Trump. All right. Hey, we are almost out of time. We just have a couple minutes for the final feature on Talking Feds of uh, five words or fewer in which we take a question from a listener. And uh, we all have to answer it in five words or fewer. And the question is, if you had to rewrite it, Harvard's motto, a longstanding motto from the 17th century, Veritas, what should Harvard's new motto be? Five words or fewer, anybody. This is more than five words, but it's too good to pass up. I talked to my friend who used to live in Harvard's Pennypacker Hall, and he said that one of the years they changed the slogan on their T-shirts to very trashed, <laughs> and another year they changed it to inebria. So I think either of those. I don't like the question. I don't like the assignment. Yeah, okay. So my five words are, 
It doesn't need changing. Excellent. You know, this is often the least liked uh, feature for, for the guests, but the most liked by listeners. Since the assignment was, it has to be changed, I change it to injuria voluntaria, which is uh, my Latin translation for self-inflicted wound. Exactly. All right. I think you guys all beat me. Mine's pretty drab, but very tuss, but verify. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Sadie, Jonathan, and Jim. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes talking books and bonus video content, as well as daily explanations by me of important developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. And some exciting news. You can now leave voicemails with your questions for me and our guests. All you have to do is call 727-279-5339 and leave a voice message for a chance to be featured on the show or to give suggestions for our sidebar feature. That's 727-279-5339. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry. As long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Catherine Devine, associate producer Meredith McCabe. Sound engineering by Matt McCardle. Our research producer is Zeke Reed. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. And production assistance by Akshaj Turbailu. Thanks to Brad Williams for explaining what is a special master. Our endless gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Fez is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Thank you.